We've come to the end of the second table of the law this evening with these two commandments that deal with coveting. And the main distinction between the two is that in the ninth, we're dealing with your neighbor's house and his inheritance, while the tenth deals with your neighbor's spouse, workers, animals, and the like. But when it comes to teaching these two commandments, they're often lumped in together for the sake of efficiency, like the Apostle Paul does, uh, for example, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, chapter 13, and so forth. So tonight, I'll take them both together, take them both together, and help us to understand why God finished the Decalogue in this way, the Ten Commandments. So whenever we talk about the two tables of the law, the first table is the first three commandments that provide, a, uh, provide us a framework for our relationship with God. That's the first three commandments. Now the second table, four through ten, provide us a framework for our lives in this world and how we are to live life uh, before our neighbors. And as we've gone through this second table, we've been reminded that obedience to God's law is much more about, uh, it's much more than just about external actions. As Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, the commandments actually expose the underlying motivations of our hearts. So that's why God puts these two commandments here at the end. Because even if you get through those commandments, as we've listed them out this evening, if you read those, both tables, and you come away from that thinking, well, I've, I think I've kept it, whenever you get to these two at the end, you have them to remind you that righteousness is not just an external matter, but righteousness is about righteousness of the heart. In other words, you may not have committed adultery, with your neighbor's wife, according to the sixth commandment. But perhaps you've coveted her. So have you really kept the commandments then? Perhaps you haven't stolen anything from your neighbor, but you've coveted something that belongs to him, and you've thought about how you might go about getting that thing. So they're kind of here at the end to keep us from getting off the hook. And this isn't my own explanation or interpretation. This is what Luther is getting at in, in the large catechism whenever he writes on these two commandments. The idea here is that God forbids coveting and he calls it sin because it is the source of all sorts of other sins. So I'm going to demonstrate that for you from our text this evening. We have this classic example of how this plays out in the lives of, of people in, in our text from 1 Kings. It was a restful time in the northern kingdom. It was relatively peaceful. The Syrian threat had been diminished from the north for the time being. People were able to catch their breath. They were able to plant and grow their gardens. And they were able to enjoy this period of peace and prosperity. But as one commentator notes, times of ease and prosperity can be whenever Satan does his most effective work. King Ahab looked out and he saw a vineyard that was located next to one of his palaces. And he wanted it. But he did more than just want it. He coveted it. And we will see, we're going to see the telltale sign in just a minute for why this is the case. But at first, Ahab approached the situation like a halfway decent human being, at least for one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. So he went to Naboth, 
who's the owner of the vineyard, and he asked to trade for it. He offered to give him a better vineyard. He uh, reasoned with him, said that, oh, this one's close to my house. It's close to my palace. So how about I give you a better vineyard for it? Or he would just buy it outright at a fair price. Seems like a fair offer, rather enticing. Honestly, if I were Naboth, I would at least to see what the other vineyard looked like. You know, if it meant that I could actually move out of the purview of a politician and I could go out on my own, well, then sign me up, you know. But honorable men like Naboth didn't think that way. Here was his response. He said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You see, Naboth likely didn't care for King Ahab one bit. Ahab likely knew him for the syncretist that he was. A syncretist is someone who mixes worship of the true God with false worship. And that's what King Ahab was doing since day one. He was bringing in the prophets of Baal. He was setting up golden calves in the temples and so forth. That's kind of what he was notorious for. And in those days, uh, in those days, whenever you inherited a piece of land, this was not something that you would just peddle off to the highest bidder. No, it was, it was understood that God owned that land and he appointed it to specific families. He apportioned that land. You can actually read this in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, whenever they're, they're going through the Canaanite conquest, God divvies up these portions of land. It was supposed to stay in your family. And you were only supposed to get rid of that kind of property if you were in dire financial straits. And even then, the understanding was that it was going to go back to your family through your closest redeemer. But Ahab didn't care about any of that. This is who he was. He just wanted the vineyard. He coveted the vineyard, despite what God's word said about the matter. But Naboth refused. And so Ahab went home and he sulked like a teenager who had just discovered Duran Duran or the cure. I was wondering who was going to get that. All right. I was seriously scratching my head. What references should I make? I knew Matt would get it at least. Okay. This is how we can. Con- that this desire of his was much more than just simple wanting. This rose to a level of obsession. This is the type of thing that God forbids in the ninth and 10th commandment, or especially the ninth commandment, whenever it, 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 it does not permit us to covet our neighbor's house or his inheritance. So this behavior of his, it reveals that it's just more than passing interest or in making a deal that is convenient for both parties. So Jezebel finds him there and she knew something was up. He was probably listening to a Smith's record or something like that. But he told her the story and that's when the Jenga tower began to fall down. And this is why God locates these commandments here at the end. Because if coveting is not held in check, then it leads to this cascade effect of breaking numerous others. It's almost like the, it's the bottom of the Jenga tower that holds all the rest in place. So here's what happens. Jezebel wrote to a bunch of officials in Jezreel, which was Naboth's town, Naboth's city, and she used Ahab's signature and his own seal to call for a fast. 
Kings could do that in those days. It was uh, usually in response to something disastrous or some kind of drought or something. Everybody call a fast. It's going to be a public assembly. It's a big deal, right? But this was a total sham. This was not a legit worship service. This was called at the behest of Jezebel. And at this sham of an assembly, she then had arranged to have Naboth set at the head of the people. It was this place of honor and dignity. But, of course, this was another lie. And just like you would see in a mafia movie, she actually hired two guys to come and bring a charge against him publicly. To lie about him, to say that he had cursed God and the king. These were two These were two things that would get you stoned to death, according to Levitical law. And you had to have two witnesses to verify. She was using the law to her advantage. You see the connection to the catechism here. That she was trying to get Naboth's vineyard in a way that only appeared right. It appeared to be lawful, but she was just using the law to scheme, to connive. And seeing that they had the two required witnesses, the people took Naboth outside the city and they stoned him. It's the second passage uh, during this catechetical series that it's ended in a stoning, okay? Um, I didn't even think about that. But in the end, Ahab got what he wanted, what he coveted so dearly, but it was at the cost of his neighbor's life And his neighbor's reputation. And here's the cascade effect. All because Ahab coveted the fifth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandments were all broken. Not to mention the first, which these are all connected to. So as I mentioned last week, what the commandments are here to do is to teach us about God's gifts that he wants to preserve and that he wants to protect in the lives of his people and in the lives of anyone. And the ninth and 10th commandments are about God's gift of contentment. Contentment. See, this is the answer for our covetous hearts, our covetous hearts that always want to look to the things of this world to satisfy us. It's like we've got this massive pit with inside us and we just want to stuff as many things in there as we can. And we think that that's going to lead to contentment. But St. Paul says this, he says contentment, or he says godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. We know that contentment means being satisfied and grateful for what we have. But it goes a bit further than that. Because what do the ninth and 10 commandments promote for us to do? We should help and be of service to our neighbor in keeping his house and inheritance. We should urge our neighbor's wife and workers to stay and to do their duty. It means that we genuinely want our neighbor to enjoy what belongs to him. We are glad that our neighbor has those things, and we do not want to deprive him of them. I had a Christian friend several years back who was great at this. On one occasion, there was somebody that we both knew who uh, drove a beater car for several years, and this person was finally able to uh, save enough to buy a new car. And then this Christian friend of mine, he he was over the moon 
It's like he's the one who bought the car himself. He kept walking around it and going, this is awesome. This is awesome. He kept saying, here, show me this. And he wanted to see all the features and he wanted to call other people over there. Look at this. Look at how awesome. Contentment. Being grateful for what you have, but also thrilled that your neighbor has what he has. But where do we get this? Am I telling you that you, you need to go on a 12-step program towards contentment today? Is that what the scriptures are calling us to here? Is it an attitude that we adopt by osmosis? Is it something that we cultivate simply by talking about it? You know, true contentment, the kind that St. Paul talks about, is not found in an act of the human will. It's not within you. It's found when we realize that in Christ, we have all that we need and more. Jezebel wanted to make her husband content through the blood of their neighbor, a godly man. But Jesus, the only innocent man, the only righteous one who gives us his own blood, which is a treasure far more precious than anything in this world, And rather than coveting coveting the goods of his neighbor, rather than wanting anything from you and I, he came to make himself nothing. And by his atoning death on the cross and by his resurrection, he has come to claim exactly what he wants in this world. Something that he values far, far more than any vineyard or any palace. And do you know what that is? Do you know what the thing is that he wants more than anything in this world? You. For all your sins and faults, For all your shame and your guilt. Even with all the times that you have obsessed over things that are not yours. And that God has said that does not belong to you. For all those times when you've done that. Your Savior has said, I want you. And therein lies your contentment, brothers and sisters. You already have everything you need for this life in the life of the world to come, in your Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen.